Everybody and welcome to Carnival Personnel Sideshow. Right up the top, expect this to be uh, be be a lot of fun. Um, sadly, I'm flying solo. I don't have Biff, you know, or Joe, so it's just me. But my buddy, who's coming on the show today, uh, I've known for quite some time. Um, we could talk a number of different podcasts with him and his TV life. Um, he and I have fought tooth and nail over who gets to be president or vice president of the Julian Edelman fan club. Uh, but, but specifically, we're having him on today because my buddy Tom uh, is a candy man, a, a chocolate connoisseur. I don't know the right topic. But anyways, uh, Tom, thank you for coming on. How are you? I am great. How are you doing, Jacques? <laughs> I'm good. So the backstory is I met Tom a very long time ago pitching one of a reality TV show of, of some sort. And he had a wildly successful uh, reality production company in L.A. I don't want to exaggerate, but we're talking at least how many hundreds of hours of of production <laughs> have under your belt like honestly they, they made it to network to you know to, to to these reality shows are we talking 500 plus hours you know i like to think it wasn't about quantity but about quality <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know my my favorite show that you ever tried to get off the ground was the speed dating super uh the a speed dating oh. show um, that was so much fun. It, yeah. was, it was shot at, com at a Comic Con. And this is how long I, I, I've known Tom. He did this show just before the MCU took off. And it was one of those things where Iron Man was a, a C list character in, in, yeah. in the United States pop culture world. <laughs> yep. And yep. one of the guys that you focused on had an Iron Man outfit. Mm hmm. You know, six months later, Iron Man is the most popular, you know, superhero franchise. I mean, he that that first <laughs> Iron Man basically launched the MCU. You know, because it because it was yep. so overwhelmingly, um, yep. And that one didn't go. Well, that that's a good example of how television production was just really frustrating because you'd have these great ideas, and they turned into great shows, but various circumstances combined to just make it not happen. In that particular case, we had pitched the show to, I think it was VH1, and they wanted it. And then TLC called and said, no, we want it. <laughs> I was like, okay. I had a really good relationship with TLC, um, and we were doing a bunch of stuff for them. You know, Here Comes Honey Boo Boo and, and, and Tyler's and Tiara's and all these other shows. And they made it very clear they really wanted it. And so I said, you know, we can talk about it, but it doesn't seem like the right kind of show for you guys. Like it just the speed dating show. It's called, it was called geek love. And, uh, it just didn't seem right. But at the end of the day, they were like, well, we want it. And it, you know, it's one of those things where you have a, a long-term business relationship. You don't want to upset anybody. You're like, okay, here. So of course it didn't get very good rating. Great show. Luckily though, shortly after that, um, I think it was IGN, the, the video game company. Was it IGN Network? And now, now it's, yeah, okay. So IGN did their own network, and they actually picked it up, and they did it as a series. 
um, for a while, which was really cool because it was a good, but it just didn't really have an audience. So one of those things really, like, yeah, and this happens so often, you have these great ideas and either the presentation or the limited series is so great, but it just doesn't find the audience for some number of reasons. So that's one of the great things about what I do now is it's right to, you're not going through networks. There's no network notes. You're not getting anybody giving creative input. It's just us making the stuff we want. And then people buy it if they like it. And if they don't, they don't. So and, there you go. And so I, I did. I, you know, maybe once every two months I had a different, you know, either somebody would come to me. Very often people come to me and say, hey, you can get me in this room. I have this show idea and I'd help get their material together. I'd have some things. And about once every couple months I would come by and, and we would talk. I remember one time somebody flew in from North Carolina. They had a decent show. And I think it's the first time I was in your office and I noticed that you did have a Julian Edelman frame picture. And <laughs> at the time, Julian Edelman was, I mean, Welker's still on the New England Patriots. So, uh, you know, it's his second year, I think. And mm-hmm. we, we probably spent, we had an hour budget for time. And I think we spent 45 minutes. Yeah. And this poor woman there from North Carolina is like, can we please talk about my show now? The show, yeah. <laughs> and, so, and that was actually, Edelman was, I, for, for whatever reason, the very first season, like I was like, wow, this guy really has something. I remember, I, and I got a shirt. And I remember going in, we were at CAA, uh, we had a meeting with Rich Eisen, who was, you know, the host of um, the NFL Network. And I walked in wearing the shirt. <laughs> And uh, he's like, Edel-. he was like so confused. Like, why would you have an Edelman shirt? <laughs> I was like, like, went down the whole litany of you know reasons why he's awesome. So I don't know if it had any impression on on Rich, but he obviously knew somebody was a fan early on. But yeah, just the bummer that he uh, he retired this year. But uh, it was a great run. It was a great run, and and you know I will have you back on when Biff cannot come on and do the show because I don't want him raining on our parade of. Yes, he belongs in the Hall of Fame, and you and I will chat why. But we'll do a different Edelman podcast if he really is retired and doesn't come out of retirement to go down to Tampa with Tom next year. Anyways. Perfect. I'm there. So All one right. day I'm talking to Tom, and basically you you I, I you could have knocked me over with a feather. Uh, oh, Tom and I could also do another podcast because another way that our worlds converge is Tom's a big dog rescue guy. And and my my wife, you know, I say we do dog rescue. It's really my wife, and she still does it. You know, we we are headed to JFK possibly next week to get a couple dogs, a couple special need dogs coming in from Qatar. Great, that's uh, great. But Tom's office, when you walked in, it was probably the first office that I walked in that was dog friendly i mean i think it was a two to one person to dog ratio yeah we had a ton oh we had a ton of dogs and it created its own challenges but it was so worth it and people just the environment was great that you know we were had we had at least dogs around all the time also i would foster dogs in my office which after a while i felt kind of bad about because like the, the folks on the night shift would have to walk them <laughs> but I, I did it for a long for a while and uh it was it was really it just did something that's really important to us because we saw how many dogs were especially in los angeles you know being killed every day so that, that's you know. why the wife and i we had a we had a 150 square foot mansion in playa del rey that sometimes i you know, when i say that people are like wait that mm-hmm. man um and and we we were on the list the um the new hope list it was called 
And, mm. I, and I don't know if you're familiar with the New Hope list, but the shelters have a New Hope list. It's mm. a nice way. It's like the Patriot Act. It sounds great, but it really strips you of all your freedom. The New Hope list is we got 24 hours to get these dogs out of here or they're going bye bye. Right. And so we, we right. there be some times, or we were also on the call list if they raided a hoarder's house, and they would yeah. put out a call. It's like, well, this lady has fifty dogs in a studio apartment, and mm-hmm. they're either going to go to the kill shelter, or if you wing nuts want to drive up here to Bakersfield and get them, uh, so yeah. so we 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 could do a, a dog thing. But one day, I'm talking to Tom, and he basically lets me know, yeah. I'm done. I'm, you know, it's like I got this reality kingdom. I have a half a dozen long running shows currently in production, but I, I, I'm I'm done. And I don't know if you knew you were going to do chocolate at that point, but basically you're like, yeah, I'm going back to the homeland. Um, mm-hmm. You know, about about 20. Same, same with me, about 25 miles outside of Boston, but just slightly in a different direction. Yep. And you were like, yeah, I'm just, I'm done. <laughs> and yeah, I actually, I actually knew at that point, the point, at the point we talked, I knew I was doing chocolate because when I sold my company in 2010, when did we do the, when did we do that Billy Ray Cyrus show? That was, that was later. That was, yeah, so that was when we first met. <laughs> That's, yeah, we're not going to talk about that. But um, it was after, so at that point, I'd already sold the company because that's when you and I met. And that was after that. So, um, it was a great show, though. Um, yeah, bringing troops back home. Yeah. yeah, I was bringing troops back home from you know early to, to surprise their families. Um, but so I knew because I sold my company in 2010, and it was a six-year deal. And so I knew I wanted to do something different at the end of that, most likely, because I wouldn't want to work for somebody else. And the industry was changing quite a bit, too. It wasn't uh, – you could see the writing on the wall with streaming and how it was going to affect cable. So Monica and I have been doing chocolate as a hobby – for many years and it was something that we realized that we first of all we we were passionate about we loved doing and it was something we could do that was family friendly so we could build our chocolate factory on our property Um, this was the plan at least Um, make chocolate basically at home be able to spend time with the kids and we could uh, do it anywhere so we can move back back east monica's from baltimore i'm from the actually from the western part of the state about an hour and a half from boston but um we really love this area of, of boston so that was the the sort of six-year plan and that six years from the pretty much the time you, you and i met up until i left was monica and i just figuring out how we're going to do this it was a lot of um, trips to origins going down to find cacao beans um reading up and and on the science uh, behind chocolate making, doing a lot of test batches in our kitchen. So it was just the, kind of this, this five-year thing. And we moved back here um, when we were looking for places. We were trying to find a place that had no space to do our chocolate factory, which you have been here. You've seen it. It's it's a great spot. It's an old farmhouse. And in the back, we converted the, the garage into a chocolate factory. So it's been fantastic in the past five, six years um, since we started, almost. Um, we've been lucky enough to have a lot of success in a couple of months or last month we were food and wine magazine included us on their list of the best chocolate in america um we've won a lot of awards and a lot of recognition we've got a real loyal following um and even here in massachusetts at some point i'll, I'll let you ask a question um even here in massachusetts <laughs> 
you know, when we first got here, craft chocolate, single origin chocolate, um, or expensive chocolate bars, compa- expensive compared to the artificially low prices of, you know, mass market chocolate, um, wasn't something a lot of people in New England were exposed to. But um, the efforts that we've made, that other craft chocolate makers in the area, and there's there are some good ones, um, that awareness has risen. So now store owners, when I first got here and I was calling around saying, Hey, will you carry our chocolate? And they said, you know, how much does it cost? And I was like, well, it's $12 a bar. Like, of course not. <laughs> Who would pay that kind of money? Are you insane? And now those same people are carrying our, our $16 bars because they're like people, you know, this is, this is an incredible thing. It's completely different. People, they understand it. They appreciate it. It sells really well. So that whole progression has been really interesting to see. Well, what's interesting is again, first of all, uh, I forgot. So, so we 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 got Edelman. We have so the dog rescue thing. I forgot we both worked with Mr. Cyrus. <laughs> How can you? Well, see, I'm the one who got to go on all the shoots, so oh. it was very vivid in my memory. Uh, well, no, I I I've been on more planes with him doing like mm. half times and and national anthems. Um, it's funny. I just shot something down in Nashville. The only time I left my COVID bubble during the whole thing is I had to go to Nashville to shoot this thing for armed forces entertainment. And Mm. I was there for just two days, nine bands. It was very (laughs) safe. I mean, I still quarantined away from the family when I got back until I got two negative tests over the course of a week. But, uh, Mm. I, I didn't get a chance to make the phone call, uh, to let them know I was in Mm. I did. Um, hire his brother to work with us. His brother's just a great, like Mick. He's like just the nicest, you know, guy. Anyway, but so back to the chocolate. Yes, the last time I came by, and it's been a while, you, everything was up, everything was ready, and you were waiting on the final inspection. And I got to, I was at your house. I brought my sister and one of my little guys the yep. day of the final inspection. And yep. I got the whole tour. It was absolutely, you had just, like I said, you were ready to flip on the switch over at Wonka. And <laughs> um, and the guy had shown up just as we were leaving, you know, to do yep. the final walkthrough inspection. And it's been amazing to like, you know, have these conversations where, when you started, you're like, yeah, hopefully we can get picked up here and there. And it mm-hmm. seemed like you were really looking to just to this to be a glorified hobby that didn't cost you things. Like if you can break even with this, you guys are good, you know. And yeah. now yeah. Uh, when we talked a couple of weeks ago, so many it's sad that COVID for so many reasons, but the, the mom and pop businesses that went away that aren't coming back, the industries that got crushed. Um, you know, it's funny. My wife just brought it up the other day. I don't know what made her think of it, but my kids have absolutely crazy Robert Plant hair like I do. And twice, three years ago, we got lice. Like there was a life outbreak <laughs> at their school. And we, and we had to go to one of these places that specialize in, because you can't do our hair. Like at home, you just, you, you, and it's like, my wife's like, oh man, because kids weren't in school last year, I wonder if those places survived. So mm-hmm. there's so many businesses that got crushed. You didn't have that situation. Mm. Like 2020 was not a business-wise awful thing for you guys. No, 2020. So for all, I think, chocolate makers, um, it was for the vast majority, it was a very good year because people wanted affordable luxuries. You know, they were stuck 
at home and they wanted things that could make them feel good for at least a little bit of time. And I remember early on reading, I think it was the Wall Street Journal said the two foods that are most in demand are vodka and chocolate, (laughs) (laughs) which really makes sense when you think about it. So, and this was something, this was not an accident either. Um, When I first was thinking about doing this as a business, one of the things I looked at was how did chocolate do during the economic downturn in 2008, 2009? Because that was something that really surprised me too when I was doing my TV business is our business doubled. And it was because people needed entertainment. They wanted something you know, to watch and they weren't traveling. So there, there were all these different factors. So I was looking at, at chocolate in the same time. And the same thing had happened with, with fine chocolate where the sales had gone up you know, precipitously. So that was something that was uh, always in the back of my head. Like if there is a downturn, there's a you know possibility that the business could improve. I, I was surprised. Certainly a number of things came together that really helped us. The biggest one being that so many people moved to buying online. And I think people found us that way. The fact that we had all these awards and, and this different notoriety where these things were getting published, articles about us, people would find us and they would order online because they're just more used to doing that now. So our, our business quintupled in that. And like, and like you said, originally this was not about growing another big company. This was about, you know, a glorified hobby or something we could do um, without killing ourselves, give us time for family. But over time it has definitely taken up much more time than we anticipated. Uh, it's definitely a full-time job. It's nights and weekends sometimes, and we still can't keep up. You know, after this year, this past year with all the orders, there's just been way more requests for chocolate than we can fulfill. So we're always out of bars. Um, and I feel bad because people <laughs> want chocolate. Um, but <clears throat> it's, uh, it's a good feeling too, to know that, uh, you know, there's, there's more demand than we can, than we can supply. A couple of quick uh, fun things. We actually had friends of in this past year, right when the pandemic started, we had a, a friend, I, I was looking at the order, the orders come in, I always see them. And uh, there was a gift uh, message on one of them. It said, uh, you know, thanks for keeping us all safe. I was like, that's an interesting message. I wonder, <laughs> I wonder who this is going to. I wonder who's keeping who's safe. And I, I looked at the recipient and it was uh, Dr. Fauci. And that was really cool just because it was like in April, right when everything was going down. So we, in addition to um, the order, we sent him a separate package and just said, you know, thank you for everything you're doing. And we sent him every single part we have and we got a nice thank you note. Um, but it's just, and then um, and we had uh, some other people, like um, we sent a, a pack, a friend of Nancy Pelosi sent her some of our chocolate. So it's been, it's been really cool to be able to like know that this is something that, certain people um, are enjoying and, uh, you know, we send nice notes just saying thank you. And uh, I don't know, it's just an interesting phenomenon that this has gone to, to so many places and so many people around the country. And in that way, it is somewhat similar to TV in that, you know, I could go somewhere and mention a show and people would know it. And it's the same kind of thing. Now we have people all over the country who, who know our brand and love our brand. And it's just, a, it's a really cool feeling. You work that hard for something to have it recognized and appreciated that way. It's um, I also want to point out something about Tom and his wife and who they are as people. First of all, you know, my grandfather always said, 
always be suspicious of somebody who doesn't like dogs. So the fact that we've already established what a dog person, you know, you guys are is wonderful. And, and what was, what did, weren't you, didn't you have that pilots and pups? Like what was the, you know, the, the, anyway, so it was some kind of rescue thing or didn't you have a, a place inside a mall at one point where people could, mm-hmm. okay. So yeah, what, love it. Love and leashes. It was a, a nonprofit. It was in, in conjunction with the um, Los Angeles shelters. And, they had this idea. It was sort of like, uh, you know, a, a friends of organization. So it's outside of the government entity. It's funded by private donations, but has a lot more flexibility. So we would take dogs every day. Um, shelter system would bring dogs to this uh, mall space. It was the, uh, what, what the heck was the mall? I, it's been so long. I there it is. Like, I see it in my head. It has West side pavilion. West side, yeah. West side, right. Yeah. So, um, you know, really, really big mall. And they would bring the dogs in. And we'd have them in a storefront so people could just walk by and see them. And there was another pet shop in the same mall that had, you know, a puppy mill, you know, puppies. Which is, yeah. It's just so, the whole thing's so evil. So, um, but it was this really great way because people don't want to go to shelters, which I completely understand. I I I would go all the time and it would just it just rips your heart out. I, I couldn't. My my wife would go like if we went into a shelter, I would get mad at my wife. I used to tell her, Tom, and like mm. when she would go do an adoption event, okay, yeah. honey, the object is to come home with less dogs than you go with. Like right. you know, I right. tell her. But she would go into the shelter to get this dog and she would come home with three. And I'd be yeah. like, We don't have the room, we have this. Of course, I never said no, but I would be I would be upset. However, I knew I couldn't go with her because if I went in, every yep. dog that we could squeeze in the car would have been coming yep. home with us. So, so I understand yep. uh, why people don't want to go in. Like I said, we could do a holding on dogs. But what I wanted to say is I know a lot of rescue people who will step over a homeless person to go into the shelter to get a dog. When yeah. you started this, one of the things that amazed me, and it shouldn't amaze me, but – how important it was for you when you went on these trips to get, you know, to to create the supply chain that you needed, that you really wanted to make sure that your your uh, you were equi- uh, what it was what's a big boy word I'm looking for equity equity yeah. sourced mm-hmm. materials yeah. that you wanted to go down to the farm you weren't depending on a buyer or a middleman to supply you with the resources. You wanted to go and see where the beans are coming from, how the employees are treated, you know, what effect this has on the local community. And mm-hmm. you didn't go down and do a day trip. You spent a good deal of time, you know, yeah. making sure that the people that you were dealing with, that you could feel good about making bars. So it's, so that, that speak about that if you can, in the process of finding the right, combination of beans that are really great but coming from people who can make a livable wage in the countries they're at yeah i mean i can speak about that you have to tell me to shut up at a certain point because this is this is really the crux of the whole thing and this affects so much more than just chocolate i mean all the issues we're having a lot of the issues we're having right now with immigration you know this stems from the fact that there is so much inequality there are so many systemic issues in these central and south american countries and it's creating these unsafe environments for for so many people and one of the things we we knew going into this is that the cacao supply chain in particular 
has a lot of issues. And you can see all kinds of amazing reporting on this. You know, the Washington Post has done great stuff, uh, the New York Times. But historically, and even today, chocolate has been purchased at, at artificially low prices by the big chocolate companies. And this has been, again, historically, even going back to Cadbury and Hershey and, and uh, all these companies back in the 1800s, um, they knew this was going on and it served their purposes to allow it to continue. And so they, they always have. And so we, we saw that as something we could hopefully raise awareness of and prove that there is a way you can buy these beans responsibly and sustainably and ethically and still have a successful business. So going into it initially, we limited where we're buying from to Central America and South America. We could travel there with young kids. We could travel there fairly easily. Also, Monica's um, fluent in Spanish. She's, she lived in Panama and Costa Rica for a while. So we can talk directly with farmers and, and, and employees and, and anyone else down there, um, except for the ones who speak Quechimayan. Uh, uh, <laughs> that's, that's a fun translation, English to Spanish. to yeah. So, um, But we really wanted to be able to to not only just pay more money for the beans, that's that's potentially one way of helping improve the situation, but you also have to know how the money's being spent, where the money's going, are workers being paid legally, are they being paid at least a minimum wage or more? Um, what are the labor practices? Do they have, do the place have healthcare or housing? Or There's all kinds of things wrapped up in that. So going down there and being able to talk to farmers see farmers, in some cases, live with them for a bit. And Monica spent some time with the, the Kechimayan, um, uh, Maya, sorry, um, uh, villagers in San Juan Chivite, which is our Guatemala origin. And uh, we've been down there a, a few times. And she really got to know them and, and kind of understand more about it. It was interesting. This is speaking of sort of a tangential issue is gender equity. You know, down there, it's a very patriarchal society. So when she went down there by herself, um, for the second time I had come the first time with her, um, she met with all the men in the village because that's what, you, that's what they do. They meet the, the men meet. And so she said, they were like, where's Tom? And she said, well, he's back home with the kids and everybody's, everybody's silent. And finally, um, one of the, one of the guys said, well, how does he eat? <laughs> she's not there to cook me dinner, you know? So it was just that sort of idea. And, and so the second part of that was she met with, she said, look, I want to meet with all the women in the village. And again, like this was not something that was really done. So when we came in and everybody was really, and she asked, you know, what do you want, you know, what do you want out of this? And, you know, where do you see things moving? And nobody was answering. And finally she was like, well, what's, you know, Am I not? You're not understanding, or what? And one woman said, "No, we understand. It's just that nobody's ever asked us that before." Right. So you know, so this goes layers and layers deep when it comes to equity issues. Um, but overall, consumers in general need to pay more attention to where their food is coming from, where things are being sourced from, and unfortunately, for better or worse, um, people we were. we're kind of lazy in this way where we just see a stamp. Oh, it's fair trade. 
oh, it's organic. So it's got to be, you know, everything's okay. And that is absolutely not the case. And there are issues um, with certifications like fair trade, uh, you know, not to knock it. It's, it's a step in the right direction, but it is not the answer. There's a lot more that, that could be and should be done um, around that. And there's also what people don't realize is farmers are paying for those certifications. So a lot of farmers can't afford that. So you don't want to lock them out. Um, so people, some of our, our cacao is actually um, fair, um, organic, certified organic, but we don't put that on the labels because we don't want to make it seem like, oh, that's, that's a, a prerequisite for quality. And you can still have something that is that is, you know, pesticide free and, and you know, not, you know, not using any fertilizer, any of that, but it's not certified organic because there's so many farmers out there who can't even afford fertilizer. So, you know, <laughs> they're not definitely not going to afford organic certification. So anyway, there's a lot of different issues that are wrapped up in it. Um, we signed on to an amicus brief that was for a case that was heard um, before the U.S. Supreme Court um, back in late 2020, um, November. And that was uh, Nestle versus Doe, where there's some workers um, in West Africa who sued um, saying, look, the artificially low prices that these companies are paying is creating all these issues. It's, a, it's an unfair practice. And that decision should be coming fairly soon. We're guessing that it's probably gonna be a decision in the negative, but, um, it's very possible, and what's hoped for is that there's a dissent that helps lead the way for, okay, how would we be able to hold these companies? What, what is a legal avenue? So, yeah, again, like I said, I, I could talk you know, for an hour, so I'll just, I'll just stop here. And- I remember in the airline thing, because that's a big thing. There's, there's those fair practices where some governments you know, underwrite their, their airlines, which gives them an unfair advantage so this is the same thing in chocolate that mm-hmm. you know but, but maybe you need to make a a show about this maybe you need to <laughs> you know start you know make a um oh what was that what was that diamond movie that awful diamond movie uh blood oh blood diamond yeah yeah blood, okay. i never saw it but, but yeah. now so so now has your supply chain been greatly affected over the last year because of this so what's been it hang on a sec i can you're a little yelling at me. So I, I told the kids, this is lunchtime. Normally I'd be making lunch. I was like, hey guys, make your own lunch, <laughs> which has never happened before. So I'm really curious as what's going on over there. At the moment. I, I, can, I can definitely hear yelling. So in, in, a, in a couple minutes, there might be some, a, a small child running out here uh, yelling my name. So we'll oh, see. Good. Um, um, so your supply what was the question? <laughs> your supply chain. Oh yeah. So oddly enough, last year, it wasn't quite as affected because the harvest generally happens in the spring. So by the time COVID got down there, a lot of a, a lot of the harvest was done, and because these areas are so remote, um, it didn't really affect some of these communities early on. That being said, there were some issues with getting stuff out. After a while, countries were shutting down roads. They couldn't get trucks out. Um, so luckily, though, we buy about a year ahead of time because you have to. You, you commit to the harvest, and then it comes in. So we had a lot of beans set aside. Um, it's been a little rockier these past few months, which is interesting because it seems like overall supply chain issues are really coming up right now with a lot of things, you know, the microchips and um, chlorine. <laughs> so, um, which if you don't know, I know you have a pool. You should Salt look at water. the chlorine. Salt water. Okay, perfect. All right, great. Um, so, <laughs> Just lucky. So, 
I know. I was like, what? Seriously? Like, we're going to take away the pools from people? Um, but it's it's been more challenging now because of all the issues the countries have had over the past year. That's affected um, how, because this isn't a matter of just one farmer going out in his field, harvesting some pods and putting them in a box. It's a lot of different farmers in a large area. So there's a lot of transportation issues people have to meet. Um, so, and you have to transport all that. And so all that trucking, it can't be an issue. Yes. Yeah, sorry. I'm just, there's a lot of yelling now. So, so um, I hope so. Um, so we have, we have been able to though to secure the good thing is we've, we've been, one of our, our big things early on was, you know, we want to be a long-term partner. So we have bought from the same, the same suppliers of the same farmers for years and we buy a decent amount. So um, it's a lot of screaming. Um, we we so, can take a break if you, you know, I, it out. I, I don't know. I, not, not that this hasn't happened before. I just uh, see where it's going to go. Um, so I lost my train of thought again. <laughs> No, no, you talk. Well, first of all, if if I don't hear my kids yelling at each other, then something's wrong. If it's yeah, alive, I know they're, they're alive. That's that's a good thing. But but the supply oh. chain buying from the same people all. Oh yeah, because we buy. So what's happened is even though their their volume has gone down, which has been the case for a lot of these producers, they can't produce as much, which is a problem because they're relying on this income. They a lot of times they've invested a lot of money into facilities, fermenting, drying, logistics, all this stuff. So it's been challenging for them. We've been lucky in that they have set aside what we need um, from this year's harvest for the most part, um, because it's a good customer and they know that you know we're gonna keep buying. So in that way, it's been good for us, but it has been tough to see how people's income has dropped because they're not able to get out there and harvest as much. Um, and it's going to be interesting to see. Like again, you look at all the issues on the southern border, and you know all this is not to get too much into politics, but the policies of the past four years coming home to to roost, and we saw that particularly one of the the early things that happened in the Trump administration that, that I think people didn't pay a lot of attention to because it wasn't as high profile as other policies that they put into place. But they really reduced um, USAID funding. And if you spend any time in Central America in particular, there's a lot of good that USAID does in terms of infrastructure and economics and really investing in communities and creating opportunities. So when that happened, we knew like this is going to really have a negative impact on a lot of the communities we work with. And that's that's been um, coming to pass. So it's a long you know, we need a long term, well thought out um, approach to Central America uh, in many ways. Um, but it's just interesting that we're kind of uh, seeing one side of that um, in how everything's happening, trickling down um, with the cacao supply chain too. No, it's, it, it is. It's, it's, it's too much for most people to comprehend like the cause and effect for certain things, you know? Uh, and, and at the same time, as, as you and I know, we spent many, many years, I was there over two decades. And if you drive from Los Angeles to San Francisco and you see who's working the fields, it's like, you know what? I mean, when you hear all these different anti things, it's like, Dude, unless you want your salad to cost thirty dollars, you know, at a restaurant. So, so no, I'm glad that you you have a world view of that because just just too many don't. Before I forget, 
Hmm. I listened to a lot of like, you know, NWA growing up in the 80s. And Tom, hmm. one thing I learned from NWA is don't get high on your own supply. Saying hmm. that during this hmm. conversation, I think that's all I've been doing. <laughs> See, you eat <laughs> chocolate bars. So either you haven't learned the lessons of don't. So my two my twofold is how much like retail value of chocolate have you eaten this conversation? A and two, how is it you you haven't put on a hundred pounds since starting this chocolate yeah okay well the, the first one's easier to answer but i have done two full bars which is um let's see a 14 for, so 28 dollars worth of <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> retail value so i'm eating my profits here um which are very slim by the way um <clears throat> part of it is every batch we do i mean i i, I love chocolate obviously but I want to keep tasting it because I want to make sure that that you know the quality, the consistency is still there. Because this isn't a mass market product where they just you know it's eleven percent cacao and add a bunch of cheap additives. You know that it's this mass market food product. It's like you know mass market chocolate is to real chocolate what Velveeta is to real cheese. You know, so you know you have this this monotone thing, but with this it's always different and it's different from harvest to harvest we really haven't talked about there's a lot we haven't talked about with chocolate but you know it's genetics and terroir and fermentation so there's a lot of factors that go into the flavor so every time all on the way i'm tasting i'm tasting the beans i'm tasting the the chocolate and the grinders i'm tasting the finished chocolate just you know you want to have a sense of, of where things are going and even you know I, i'm eating the brown butter bar <clears throat> we just made a new batch and you know when i'm browning that you know, I, I try to keep, I try to get to the same, the same flavor, the same, you know, but it's, it's subjective, you know, the color and the smell and like, did I get it the same as last time? Is it a little bit more, a little less, you know, how, and was that better? Is it worse? Dude, how, so how long does chocolate last in a freezer? Like if you make a bar today and put it in your freezer, can you test, yeah. like, can you take out the, the same brand, like the, the chocolate butter bar from two years ago and, and mm. taste test it towards one that you just make? Will that, you know, can you, can you do that or, or do you not have the ability to store so, something for a year or two? No, um, it wouldn't, the flavor wouldn't be the same, but here's the thing. You really shouldn't put chocolate in the freezer. Um, it, a, a couple of reasons. One is chocolate really absorbs smells. So, you know, freezer, not a good idea. Also chocolate and water don't mix. <clears throat> so if you put a chocolate bar in the freezer, and take it out it's going to it's going to condense water is going to condense on the surface so if you're if you have to put it in the freezer wrap it really well um you know really with a lot of plastic which you don't want to use plastic so just don't put chocolate will stay and it will be fine at room temperature you know talking you know high 60s low 70s for a very long time there's a very low water content in chocolate so most bars will last at least a year if not more what's going to happen though is the flavors will change a little bit over that time. Also, the, the, the crystallization process never really stops with chocolate. So you're going to have a, a bit of a different mouth feel. It might not be as as smooth because the cocoa butters, the, the crystals are changing. So it's not enrobing the particles as well. So it, it tastes a little gritty or it could have a white, uh, either a white film on it, which is sugar bloom. It just happens when it, water condenses on it. It doesn't hurt the chocolate, but just doesn't look good. But also fat bloom, which is the cocoa butter separating out and again doesn't really hurt it but it affects the experience of eating it so and over time <clears throat> just letting bars sit those flavors are changing so it's going to taste very different 
later. Um, most people luckily don't let chocolate sit for that long. Usually, once they get it, it's gone pretty quick. Maybe. Yeah. So you don't want to, or maybe I shouldn't ask, or should ask, not put words in your mouth. You don't have any thoughts on expansion. What you're doing is you're no. really happy with it. Like this, this is a manageable family thing that yep. you and your wife, with a minimal amount of outside help, can mm. maintain, and you're yep. happy with that. Yeah, that was always the goal. And we did think about it right before the pandemic started. We looked at a, there's a great old mill in Hudson, um, which is beautiful. And they had all this space. It would have been like 12,000 square feet. We could have had the factory and retail space. And we thought about it because we could see how demand was increasing. And also people really want to see the process. We get calls all the time. Emails like, can we come see us? Well, we can't because we're in a residential neighborhood and it's right behind our house. And our business license doesn't permit us to do that. So um, it's a shame because it, it is really interesting. And people who do get to come here to see it, you learn a lot. That's it really sinks in. Kids love it. It was so. No, I would. Uh, the one time I was here just before you started, my sister and I still talk about you know coming back and now seeing it full operation and stuff no that i mean that's that's the best part of it yeah so that that's something that we do kind of wish we could have but for the moment you know we decided against doing that because our priority is spending time with the kids um and that worked out really well because i think through the pandemic that would have been really difficult um We've maxed out. We've we've made everything here as efficient as we, as we possibly can. We're making more bars now than we ever have, but there's a limit to just we're basically maxed out. So we could potentially get some larger grinders, increase our production a, a bit, but as it is, it's it's a pretty time intensive process, and the margins are really slim. So it isn't like we can just you know bring more people on to help out. So I think we're at a pretty good equilibrium, and although it's a bit just disappointing that we're we're out of bars sometimes. Um, you know, can't give people the, the chocolate they want. Um, we're just gonna we Do we're gonna keep doing this. Didn't eat so many that maybe. Yeah, maybe that's maybe that's where it is. Look at uh, seriously. I, I mean, I'm gonna let you go because because you got a thousand things. I do want to say I I so many things I admire about the way you go through life. You do have a nice life balance. You know, as soon as we're done talking, you're going away for the, you know, you have, you still have you, the family, even though you've been together so much during the pandemic, you're still going and, and doing family things and getting physically getting away from the office because unlike yes. a lot of jobs, you know, that in production, you're never away from the office. You're always going to get the phone call, the text, there's yeah. a meeting to have and all this stuff. If you're not right by the machines, <laughs> you don't have to worry about being right by the machine. So you have a really great yeah. life balance, which is admirable. It was what we set out to do, and uh, we're just really happy we were able to to pull it off. And it's been nice, especially um, with the kids the ages they are. Um, it's just great to be able to spend time. So you know, the pandemic has, has brought that home. So. I, I, I hate when I say it's been the worst thing in 100 years, but we're never going to get this time back that we've had with our kids, you know, and ours are just a little old. Like ours are now one just turned 11 and 13. Mm -hmm. And just to have this time is we're never, we're never going to have this much time again. And it's really yeah. been great. I mean, I, 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 I don't want to put out there publicly that I may or may not have last year taught my 12 and nine year old how to drive a car. 
uh, I did. Stick or automatic? Yeah. No, you can't even find standards anymore. It's all automatic. But you know, parallel parking, the whole nine yards. No, it's but. But before I let you go, I'm going to make you commit to coming back and doing a podcast just talking about. The, the best and worst shows that you've ever done. Cause I know that yeah. we've had a couple of talks about, you know, certain shows that you've been like, yeah, I kind of wish that this wasn't such an iconic thing, uh, which we could talk about. We will have our, is Julian Edelman a hall of fame? No, the, the conversation should be, how do we convince people who don't know the greatness of Julian Edelman that yes, he's a hall of famer. Um, no. And, and, you know, talk more about chocolate. But this has been great. Uh, congratulations on setting out to do this and kind of sticking to it and making it happen because it wasn't an overnight thing. Um, you know, it was a lot. How, you know, from the time you left L.A. to the time your first bar was on a shelf, what was it, six hmm. years, a six year window? Uh, no, from, from leaving L.A. to when we first started selling it was about a year, little almost two years, um, year and a half. Because it took, it took us a year to build out the factory and then get going. Oh, so that bad. it wasn't that bad, but also just building up, it, you know, all those years building up, like right. nobody knew who we were. Like it, it was, a, it's been a long road. And, and now you get a thank you letter from Dr. Fauci. <laughs> it was his wife actually, but yes, we, we got a very nice, we got a very nice note. Yeah. It's been really interesting to see that, that progression. And it's also interesting that it sort of followed the same trajectory as Authentic, which was the company that that I had, um, where it was the fifth year where I realized, okay, now, now this this is going to work. Like we you know, we have enough of a reputation and enough momentum, um, and a great bunch of people, and you're making great shows, and, and this can continue. So, and I think that probably holds true for a lot of businesses. Like it, it, the five year mark, you, you look at where you are, and either it's working or it's not. So, luckily, it's working. <laughs> Well, uh, congratulations. Thank you so much for doing this. Um, I will post, you know, all the, you're not, are you, uh, the, 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 you know, you got to have a Facebook page and, and do you do the mm -hmm. Twitter or Instagram? What, what social media is, is the company on? I got to say, I suck at social media, but I have, we, we have an Instagram account and we, all this, we started when we had the company, but uh, Monica does a lot of the Instagram stuff. That's really her thing. Um, so, Instagram is definitely the best way to follow us. Um, we, when we post on that, we also simultaneously post on Facebook and, and Twitter. So there are accounts there. Um, the biggest thing is our, our website. It's got a ton of information about single origin chocolate, how we source, what it's about, the history of it. Um, and there's a mailing list you can sign up for. And we let people know about the new bars. We have a lot of bars now that we only release online. So we'll make, we find really interesting cacao we want to do a small batch, so we'll do that and just sell it online so people find out about it there first. So I definitely recommend the website, but uh, Instagram is a good one, too. Uh, thank you so much, Tom, and uh, I will talk to you very soon. I will talk to you, too. Stay safe. All right, everybody, get around. Oh,
Sons of bitches! The candy man! The candy man! The candy man! 